Hello, and welcome to the Hacker Noon podcast. Today, we are joined by Davis Wynn, and he sent me a great email this week talking about following us since the dark days of media and creating startups out of essential need for his family and not necessarily because you have an idea and a pitch deck. So today we're going to talk about his business, um, touch on some insights into social media marketing, um, and also just, you know, get to know kind of the people behind startups. So, uh, Davis, thank you for joining us today. David, pleasure's all mine. As in, as of, I'm, I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to, to chat. Cool. And uh, you're in San Francisco? I'm in San Francisco most of the year, but this time around, because of the holidays, I'm back on the East Coast in Atlanta with my family. So our, I think if we talk about it, yeah, our whole company is remote. So everyone's pretty much home for the holidays or wherever they want to be. Some people are literally, I think, surfing in Bali right now or wherever <laughs> they are. <laughs> Isn't remote work the best? It is amazing. I'm in Miami right now, uh, working out of an Airbnb, and uh, I don't know. It's pretty cool. Like I like that the internet uh, gives us this opportunity to, uh, you know, butcher our work-life balance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then my, now, but then unfortunately, that means I have no excuse for like, hey, yeah, you don't have an office. Why don't you just come work at our place? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what is your primary business? Okay, so my primary business, which started, actually started as a side hustle two years ago, side businesses, we call it my consulting offer. And what we do is very simple. It's similar to in the engineering world, like Triple Byte or one of the bigger companies there is basically we place people into a particular type of role. For us, it's management consultant. So we work with people who have either are they're in college or they have an MBA or they graduated and decided, you know what, I want to learn more about the business world. And I want to be a management consultant at one of the big firms like a McKinsey, Bain or BCG. And we basically place them there. Average industry rates about 1%. We get closer to about 85% success rate. In terms of placing people in jobs? Exactly. Training them out to making sure, for example, to get the interviews and then that they're ultimately able to pass the interview and get the offer. And are you making money on both sides in the marketplace or just, <laughs> like, yeah, just for right for right now? We actually are, are, our, our income policy is actually pretty interesting, which is that right now we're not a headhunting firm because the, the companies that do work with the head company firm usually head out like the manager and so forth level, which we don't work with. We're more working with the people who are coming in at the entry level. But our pricing strategy is very similar to actually Lambda School, which I know was a great host, one of my favorite podcast episodes, actually. Oh. Um, the, the Lambda School guys, so we, we, inspiration from them because they, funny enough, when they were in YC, our, the company I worked at before, we were about two batches away from YC. So then the Lambda guys came to me because of my public speaking background and asked for a pitch. But I love their idea, which was that, all right, we'll take some, some to cover the basis for where you work with us, which is what we do. But the majority of it comes when you're actually successfully placed into the role. And then it comes, it comes from you versus comes from the employer because then there's like a whole other legal thing that we have to deal with. I mean, aligning incentives is an art. It really is. And it's like if, that, if the goal is to get the person the job, you really – that's when you should get the most money. You know, that, that's whenever both of your goals were hit. Like that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Exactly. Uh, so how did it start as a side hustle? What was the kind of the first uh, progress on the project? Absolutely. So I'll tell you a little bit about my background and then we'll go into the side hustle and how it started. But so I guess I've always been an entrepreneur at heart because my family, very similar to Lynn's family, very entrepreneurial and so forth, is that we didn't have much growing up. So my, my, for example, my grandma opened up one of the first nail salons in Atlanta and they were robbed 
twice a year. They were placed on fire once, as in there was like so many times where the community and the people didn't want my grandma to succeed, but she kept coming back at it, rebuilt the store. If she had to work another job to get the funds, she would do it. So I was like, and early on realized that failing isn't that bad. So then my family, we were evicted a couple of times growing up because we couldn't make rent and stuff like that. So I realized, you know what, worst case scenario, I just live on some, a friend's couch. But I always try to have these business ideas ever since I was in high school. Unfortunately, none of them panned out except for maybe like two. One was a poker side hustle and one was coaching public speaking. But so I went to college normally and I ended up wanting to become a management consultant. So current job that I'm placing there. So I ended up working at Bain & Company. Loved my time at there. More of like the consulting companies. Cause you know, you think about like a 12 year old trying to imagine like being a management consultant or is it more like the allure of wearing a suit and like being important, you know, cause it's not exactly the same thing as like, Oh, I want to be a professional athlete. And you know, it's like a clear, like, you know, seeing TV type of deal. I don't know. Like what, what, what really actually made you want to be a consultant? Like, what is that allure? Good, uh, good question. Wow. I love your questions here. So my, uh, so my third year of, of university, so I was a junior at the time, I ended up working at a startup because I always thought I was going to go work at a startup and fail, go to Silicon Valley, raise money. If it fails, get a good job at Google or Facebook and then try again. If I fail, great. Now I'm at Oracle or whatever. And I keep going <laughs> up the stack. And <laughs> I thought that was the, 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 the path, but I was at, I was working at a startup in New York city, quiet revolution. So their whole platform was, how do we, how do we empower introverts? One of the best companies I've ever worked for. And the, the two founders at the time, Susan Kane, who wrote this book about empowering introverts, one of my favorite TED Talks of all time, and her CEO, Paul, they were basically mentors for me. And they basically said, Davis, you know, we're both in our 50s. We're successful at this company because we have the foundations. We think that you should go into management consulting. I was like, okay, okay. That, that's kind of like the opposite of what I want. I, I don't want suits and things like that. I want, I want to just go build stuff and fail. And uh, so that happened. And then another mentor of mine who I previously worked at in LA also runs a successful startup and exited the startup like a year after we had the conversation. He said, yeah, Davis, you know what? You're spunky. You have a lot of energy. You love people. You, you basically want to do the best for people, but you, you need to be, have some structure to you. So consider going to management consulting. And I was like three mentors of mine all said it. They're like, they can't be wrong. So I decided to that's how I ended up wanting to go into consulting was three weeks before the deadline, three of my mentors all said management consulting is the path where you need to be in order to be a successful entrepreneur down the road. What was the deadline? The uh, deadline. So this was like September 1st and the deadline was around September 20th for resume and cover. And just for context is that, so uh, most people, when they want to go to consulting, they kind of know that ahead of time. They know it like years in advance. They don't know it weeks in advance. Yeah. Yeah. And what was it like working for Bain? I, I loved working at Bain. So getting in was hard, but when you get in, it's like really smart people, like from a diverse background. So you have people who would go on to become like, literally, if you think about people who are consultants now, if you think about like, for example, this Sheryl Sandberg, the CEO of Google and all these other people all came from management consulting backgrounds, but it's basically I call it almost a training bootcamp for business. So similar to how if you worked at, I, I use Oracle as a great example, but Oracle is so great at business development that they just basically have like the best sales team and so forth. But I felt like Bain really equipped you like a SWAT team to think about strategy. So like every day you're going in like one day, they're like, all right, Davis, I know you're new, but all right, we have this diligence on this gym and the company needs to decide by next week if they're going to pull the trigger on this deal. I was like, great. Okay. Well, okay. I have only used the gym, but I guess now I need to know the economics of a gym. So I'm like, Oh, okay. I think like a gym owner. And then like the week after they're like, okay, 
So our client today is a hedge fund and they buy software companies. They're thinking about acquiring these two companies and merging them. Should they do it? I was like, all right, I don't know much about these two enterprise softwares, but all right, I will, I will look into it. And then the following way, it's like, all right, we're in coconut water now. I was like, okay, great. I drink coconut water. So it's kind of like being thrown into the deep end and you have to learn. But as a result, you learn a lot of useful facts about how to approach a problem. So now when I see a business, it's like there's a methodology for how to approach it. But I also know a bunch of fun trivia facts. So trivia nights at the bar, I am totally on that now because like random facts of some of the things that I worked on. I used to do the trivia night uh, at Rogue in uh, North Beach. They have a good one. Uh, oh, interesting. All right, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> have you been playing any trivia lately? I have not. I think we, had a, we had a trivia night last, I think a month ago. We, my friends and I from San Francisco, we took a trip down to Orange County, actually. So we were, we were around Newport Beach, and then there was like a trivia the night. of Vietnamese immigrants in America, Orange County. Exactly. I, I happened to be there for another conference, and then my friends were like, hey, Davis, you know what? I want to know more about Vietnamese community. It's like, well, I'm in Orange County. You, want to, you guys want to fly down here and uh, just go through. So we were doing all the Vietnamese stuff. And at the end, we were like, yeah, let's, uh, let's add some ballots. And then it was like, well, this is trivia bar. So we ended up playing some, we ended up playing some trivia. And then uh, it brought back really good memories. But it's really funny, right? It's that, speaking of trivia, I know we're going on a tangent here. It's like in San Francisco, when you play trivia, it's more tech pop culture and so forth and references to who raised what. And then all of a sudden, I think in LA, we were so out of our element, which was like, literally it was about the music scene and everything i'm like so guys i, I think this might be the lowest scoring trivia night we'll probably have this is really embarrassing <laughs> so how did you um make the tr transition out um let's let's get into the side business so, so you got you know you're working on these tough problems at bain and uh now you end up creating a side business which i don't know how first of all is bain cool with that like can you have a full-time job at Bain and just, you know, create another business, you know, on the side? Are they, are they <laughs> encouraging in that way? <laughs> All right. So a couple of things, which is that, so my consulting offer doesn't come until I join a, a startup in, in a bit, but okay. at Bain, I did try to start a couple of side businesses. The most success, three of them failed, completely failed. As in, this was like non-venture back or anything. I was like trying to bootstrap it. And uh, Bain was, Bain was okay with it. And then with two things. One, it wasn't in direct conflict with the work that we were doing at Bain. And two, you do it at your own time, which is hard because at Bain, you're working like 60, 80 hour work weeks. So the few hours I did get on the weekends to work on it, I had to be very strategic about it, which in hindsight really helped me when I finally launched my consulting offer to take it to where it was in a short period of time. So we went like zero to six figures within a year in profits, but that was being able to be squeezed so much by Bain. I, I was used to like having only, let's say, 10 hours of free time a week that I had to figure out how to use those purposely. And what were, uh, what was the coolest failed business side business from the Bain time? The coolest failed side business. Oh, there were so many cool ones. I thought, oh, okay. Tell you what, just because I, I really love your story of how Hacker Noon came out to be. It's kind of like throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. All right. So, so one, one of the things I got, I thought was cool, cool from a personal point of view was because was, so at some point, when someone heard of one of my, my stories, when I went backpacking, they invited me to come speak at their TEDx event. So I ended up speaking at TEDx. And then at the time, I was a part of, still am, part of Toastmasters. A bunch of the Toastmasters came up to me and just said, hey, Davis, I'd love to speak at TEDx. And I said, hey, if I created this, would you pay me for it? And they're like, absolutely. 
mess and learn back then. It was like, no, no, if they're going to pay you, they're going to pay you right then and there. Not going to pay you after. So that, so that we're on this elaborate three months where I'm interviewing and talking to people who organize TEDx events, putting my own experience. How do you get to speak on a TED stage and things like that? And I packed you neatly on it. I even learned how to use an LMS, a learning management system and everything else. Thought about getting a programmer to, to an engineer to actually make one. I'm like, no, no, no. There's a bunch of good ones out there already. And then we ended up doing all this, setting it up, sales page, setting up the funnel, setting up all the APIs, the, um, the Zapiers, everything. And then we opened cart and none of the people who told me they would buy, who would buy. So I just basically burnt like three, four months of my weekends trying to build this thing. And then no one buys. And I was like, Hey guys, no interest. Like, yeah, Davis, I, I thought, it was, I thought this would be just cheaper. I was like, it's like a hundred bucks. And so that was like probably one of the more glorious failures is that it's kind of like the opposite of the lean startup, which is like, Hey, build it. They might come. And I'm like, no, build it. They will come. And so that was probably one of the biggest learnings was this is, yeah, this is like the opposite. And if anyone too prescribes the lean startup, so that's sort of like, they're they're probably cringing right now. (laughs) How, How hard did you try and sell it? I... I went to Toastmasters event. I gave speeches on the merits of speaking at TEDx. I tried to sell it to business owners. I like not not like went out of my way, but I probably spent another month trying to sell it and then had like no sale. And then the one sale who I thought was gonna go through, their card was declined. It turns out, oh, they just buy everything on their credit card. I'm like, great. And then I'm like, okay, so well mark this as a failed. Maybe I'll come back to it one day. But <laughs> And do you believe in anything of like the first customer being lucky and how the first customer who it is, it'll dictate like the future of the business? I think so. As in, I think lucky in the sense of like two things, which that well, eventually I did have a couple of side businesses and that succeeded. The, the best one that came out of the Bain period that actually succeeded was a public speaking. So because I did Toastmasters, I did TEDx, I also competed in the world championships. A lot of people in SF where I was living at the time. World championships? What's that? What type of world championships? World Championships of Public Speaking. It is like the Olympics of public speaking. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that was a thing. That's cool. And you will find that there is like an Olympic version of most things that you've never heard of. And then my friends do it all the time. They're like, yeah, Davis, I am going to the, the Catan Olympics. I was like, there's a Catan? Wait, Catan is a competitive thing? I thought you just played it on a Saturday night with your friends there. And there's like so many different sites. But yeah, World Public. Wait, I have a confession there. I've, I've never won a game of Catan. I've played like four times, never won. I was okay. Me too. Me too. Me too. I have, I have never won. I, okay. You're better than I am. I have played like eight games of my friends. I have never won a single one. Like the closest I ever came was second, which is like still not winning. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Catan is one of those games that really turns people against each other. It's like, I think it's a pretty dark game. That's true. It is almost as dark as I think we played a couple of ones. We played Resistance that turned a couple people, and then One Night Ultimate Werewolf was a popular one in San Francisco. We always play. I will say that One Night Ultimate Werewolf has definitely caused some strains in some relationships when you're like, I'm totally on your team, David. And in the last minute, you're like, just backstab me. I was like, Where were you the whole game? <laughs> <laughs> um. Cool. And so let's let's get back on focus. Yeah. This is the Olympics of tech podcasting the Hacker Noon podcast. <laughs> um, so eventually you did leave Bain full time and jump back into a startup. Can you tell us about that move? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was at Bain, I was thinking about, I always, like I mentioned, wanted to go into a startup. So I kept a list of all the companies that were going out. I would go to every meetup. I would go to Hack Days. I would go to like tech, tech crunch events and things like that. And 
well, obviously YC is a huge one. So Y Combinator is huge and they have batches coming out. So I would look at all the companies that came out for, for demo day and so forth. And then I kept a list of all the companies I knew for, for a reason, I wanted to go into tech and in education in particular. So I kept a list of all the companies that came out and just because back my background was that I came before college, I came from the, my school system was called the worst school district in the U S. So uh, I didn't have much support goes. I like education really empowered me to be where I am today. And so I kept a list of all of them. And there was one company in particular that came out of the batch of in 2016, 20 or 2016, 2017, which is jump cut, which were, they were trying to become the time the Netflix of education. It's kind of like, how do you, make education fun and so their courses are like netflix quality and so forth and i got to know the guys worked on some were they projects with content or licensing content they were producing content so it's kind of like try to imagine let's say that you're trying to take a course on let's say video ads and they make it so entertaining by taking on funny ads and so forth or if you're learning how to raise money for a startup they they make a funny series of it so people would binge watch on these i binge watched on their their courses and so i decided to uh, take a leap and after my two years at bain ended you can either re-up your contract or leave and i so i ended up moving down to la to join jump cut which has just finished y combinator about like two batches out at the time and like most startups they were able to get funding because funding through Y Combinator and so forth, except like most of us, we were still trying to figure out our, our profit model. So it's like grow, 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 grow. But I think I came in at such a great time where even though we had it, we were also obviously burning through it. So we had about six months to figure out the, the situation and how to turn the situation around. Ultimately, oh, spoiler alert, we do turn the situation around. But during this time, when I moved to LA, I've been financially supporting my family, a lot of them since I was 13. And so one of my family members was hit by with a roughly about a $21,000 medical bill. And of course, I lived in San Francisco, worked at Bain and sent a lot of money home. So there wasn't much, there wasn't like $21,000 sitting around somewhere in my bank account at the time. So, and jump cut at the time, we, I was getting paid, but it was also like, I think a lot of it also came to my equity and also we had a profit sharing going on. But I will tell you at the time, X percent of profit of zero is still zero. So there was like none of that coming in. <laughs> so uh, on the weekends, I needed to figure out this uh, business. choice to structure your contract that way in terms of uh, profit sharing as part of your employee compensation? That was a brilliant move by the leadership team. And I totally bought into it. It's like, it, because my role was about strategy, product operations, and part of the digital, the social media, digital marketing part, I think the incentives align so well. I think that's so important for them is that it's like, I don't deserve to spend their money if I'm just willy nilly spending it. So yeah. during that time, it's kind of like I was learning Facebook ads, learned YouTube ads, learned all these social media platforms. But it's kind of like, I also had to be mindful of how I spent. So I could just spend like a $20,000 test if I knew it was going to be a bad test. Cause like, Oh, some VCs paying for this in Silicon Valley. It was more of crap. That's actually coming out of my profit share too. So I have to be mindful of that one. So, but I, so we were able to eventually learn it. So that's how it was structured was, I think it worked out for, it doesn't work for every role. Like for example, for our customer service teams, like bonuses make more sense, but for like someone who's strategically aligned to the front line of their making profits for the company, I think it made perfect sense. And um, did you have the, experience with social paid social media ads before this or is it just something where you're like hey i can learn that <laughs> so i actually had none except for being like a user of all the platforms i never spent like a penny on 
any of the the paid channels and i learned all of it like google ads youtube ads facebook ads and i found that there's two things is one is what jump cut has such a willingness to learn mindset that they're like it's similar to the facebook's model of move fast break things is you'll learn fast and so i, I always love the leadership team at jump because they really encouraged me to learn and realize that the failure was like part of the team to take and the successes we'll share as a team as well and of course they was like hey davis whatever you want to do. And like I said, I love spending my money. So before the medical bill came, I spent my money on, uh, on just online courses. So I bought the best courses on YouTube ads, Facebook ads, Twitter ads, LinkedIn, whatever it was, I would just consume online courses. Again, this is why I worked at Jump Cut because I love online courses. So I, 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 what people spend, I imagine on alcohol and traveling at the time, I probably spent on online courses. So that's how I learned my, my trade was just speaking to people, going to meetups, code emailing people who were experts who owned their Facebook agencies and just picking their brain about what worked, what didn't work. And eventually we were able to scale it. On these platforms, uh, which one was the most successful for Jump Cut? Good. So the, the answer to that one for Jump Cut particularly is also very seasonal. So remember that too. Like for example, for Facebook ads, so you might see our Facebook ads is that we spend, we spend like seven figures on Facebook ads every year. Obviously we make a lot more out of it. But Facebook was very successful for us in terms of the media. And of course, one of our, but it really depend on the course. Like, for example, one of our courses was on how to use YouTube as a viable channel for income. So obviously YouTube worked really well for that one. So we basically did YouTube videos for the, the market there and it worked really well. But certain times of the year, certain platforms didn't work. Like, for example, winter, when at the time you have like all these companies coming in, trying to get people to buy their product, Black Friday, things like that our costs to run Facebook ads went up, but yeah. YouTube for some reason didn't go up. So YouTube spiked, but in the new year, for some reason, all the big ad platforms moved over to YouTube and then Facebook, they didn't really touch. So we ramped up the Facebook. So those worked out really well in terms of the big two that we had. Yeah. I saw the political candidates talking about that, you know, cause with the billionaires jumping in the race, the <laughs> price of ads are going up for all of them. <laughs> exactly. That, that is exactly happening, especially for those who are in the voting age that they're targeting, which is like basically yeah. the people who would buy your product. Uh, what do you think the biggest mistakes people are making across uh, Facebook ads and YouTube ads? Because uh, you know, it still is one of the, it is one of the primary channels, especially for startups to buy those early customers. Um, but, and, and on my side of it, like, I'm building a site where we're trying to do no personalization of ads whatsoever. And mm -hmm. it's just right now, if you want to advertise on Hacker Noon, you have to buy the whole site. Right. You buy the top navigation or you're paying as a brand to publish. So mm -hmm. I, I don't really like that. I just don't like the personalization of ads at a lot of levels. Um, it's a little creepy, you know, in terms of where the internet is right now. And like, hey, because you're following me around the internet, you think you can sell me something versus because I'm here on this spot of the internet reading this type of content, I can be sold something. But like, you know, I imagine me saying that to someone that's trying to get someone to buy a YouTube course isn't great, you know? So I guess a uh, long story short here, what <laughs> are, 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 do you feel any differently now that you're past that point of your career about how these personalized ads work? I, it is very creepy, right? As in, even before like the 2016, when I was like, favorite, I was like, wow, you know, what? during the campaign, I, was like, I could see why people, there was like so much information. Like just, just to give you an example is that, oh, I guess like, I'll answer your question of mistakes and I'll tell you some of the ramifications of it is that personalization is not going away, unfortunately, because it's getting more and more specific. It's kind of like people joke that you search for something and they're like, oh, wait, my phone overheard me because I get to see an ad for it. But like they're purposeful 
meaning of it. For example, with the with Facebook ads, I think one of the mistakes that people make with ads in general, especially startups, is that they're just like trying to throw things at the wall, which when you have venture capital money makes sense. But at the same time, you really need to track your ROI. So like from day one at Jump Cut, we always track, are we making a profit on this? It's not like, are we going to make a profit later? It's like, are we actually making a profit on the front end? Because you can't scale with that. It's like, you can't scale when you're losing money. So keeping tracking, you'd be, you'd be amazed how many startups I... You just dig it deeper. <laughs> exactly. Like you'd be, you'd be amazed how many startups I, that reach out to me and then they ask me to look at I'm like, Hey, what, what's your, what's your dashboard? What's your, I was like, Oh, we don't have one. It's just literally Facebook, Facebook ad manager. Like, no, that's terrible. I said, it's like, there's so many stuff missing. It's kind of like, you can't tell what people are clicking in or is your sales page the one that's losing them? Like what's going on? The subscribe button. Like what is it? Your sales team. Like you need to know every part of the funnel and that's where you can figure out where the leaks are and optimize for those. Like the first mistake people make is that they don't track what they're doing. Second is they're looking for like a silver bullet. So for example, we tried ads on, for example, Twitter and on Google AdWords, they didn't work for jump cut at the time. So it's kind of like you have to be agnostic. So I almost think about where, where are your first customers bound to be? Like, for example, a good example, actually this, this worked for my consulting offer when we first started was that our first customers tended to be people who read stuff on Reddit. So where did I go? Obviously I went to Reddit to run ads on it. And of course other companies have since found success on, on Reddit, but it's kind of like the second mistake people make is that they think that Facebook or YouTube is like the catch all, which a lot of people are on, but really where are the segments? Like, for example, if I ran a, a company about how to get into crypto or how to get into tech, oh yeah, I would buy out every single inventory on Hacker Noon at all, because it's like my literal demographic is right there. Why would I spend money on Facebook when I could just go to a Hacker Noon? I can go to a TechCrunch, I can go to an indie hacker and, and all those as in it's like where is your audience sitting and how do you get your message there i think that's i guess where the personalization comes in and i'll tell you the creepy part which is the third one is the personalization unfortunately really helps as in for example at one point i you, you might see more of these ads on youtube nowadays and facebook but it's kind of like one of the one of my the ceo of jump cut I, he's like such a brilliant leader as in it's like i would follow that guy too wherever it's like he one of the things he's like hey davis i have an idea what if we just target Asians on YouTube and so forth? And we just and then the ads to say, hi, I'm Asian. And then it's like, boom, they already caught for like three seconds and then they want to listen to the message. So we did, <laughs> we did the same thing. It's like, and then so there's like an option, for example, on Facebook that says target all people who say they're engineers in living in San Francisco. And so the ad could be like, hi, are you an engineer in San Francisco who's tired of your job? And then go, go, go on. So Facebook's getting harder and harder about this where you can't target like that. But in the beginning, like two years ago, this was like totally possible. And of course, there's a story, I'll never forget this, where there was a guy who was trying to target different celebrities. And so well, he would play with all the filters until it just marked that one person and spend like $10. And then that person's ad just followed their phone and that celebrity. And he, 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 I think he was featured on a bunch of of news outlets for doing that. But it's like, that's the level of extensity you can target with that. But once you figure out the market and uh, the platform, no matter if it's Twitter, if it's TikTok, if it's Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is, once you figure it out, the scaling part, as long as it's positive, that's the easy part. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I, it, you, you say it's a little, the targeting's like, is it getting better or worse? It's kind of like a interesting spot, you know, because you, you can't get to the individual like that celebrity example, I think you can't do it now, but maybe you could, maybe you just have to find someone, you know, a little more creative. Um, yeah. Are you, do you think these, 
like now that you've spent all this money and you've learned more about how personalization works, uh, do you spend less time on Facebook and do you post less time on Facebook because of like <laughs> the other side of their, their place in their business model? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I spend less time. Okay. And then, okay. I, I will tell you something from, uh, so two of my friends at Facebook told me this too, which is that, so have you ever, have you ever just went to a party or something and then talked about something and then you saw that advertisement on Facebook? So apparently one of the things that they can do, the more you post on it is that, so for example, a friend used an example. It's like, Hey Davis, you know why you were getting that ad for that brand of, what was it? Chips or something. It was like, yeah, I've never heard that chip before I went to your party. It's like, yeah, I think what happened, uh, a friend of Facebook verified. It was like, basically we took a picture of it. We tagged ourselves or a friend tagged me. And then it's kind of like, it's now part of the system. And then they kind of recognize, Oh, this is that brand. Davis associated with the brand. Let's go put him some ads on that brand. And so it is so I, I post less. Go darker in that scenario. I would say they knew your location and then they overheard audio of one of the phones in the location mentioning the chip company. <laughs> no, no one, no one has verified that from Facebook for my friends group, maybe, <laughs> but no one's verified that one. But, but exactly, I, I spend a lot less time on social media now as a result of it is I decided keep things on the private as much as I can, because it's like, there's just so much that can be used in the future. And I'm just like, mm. I, I have seen the darkest side of it too. And of course there's even levels deeper who are, let's say people, people I know who are working on the campaign trails for some of the social media. And it gets even like, there's even more radical things that you can do that you think, wow, how is that even legal? What's the most radical thing you heard? Well, you can probably just watch The Great Hack on, on Netflix to get more, a little bit more detail on this one too. But it's just like, but like for some of the targeting, you could still really target people down to, you know. So to give you an example is that I used a hypothetical example one time. I was, I was on a panel and I was showing this online. I was like, all right, imagine that you ran a, and this, this is no longer an option, but like, this is like two years ago. It's like, imagine you ran a, a funeral parlor and you were just trying to figure out who you could go to. Like, let's say that you're in the Miami area, you put a radius of Miami. And then I'm pretty sure this just my guess is that when you post that someone in your family has passed away and people say my condolences and things like that, and like the sad emoji and so forth, I think Facebook can guess that you're probably in the market for caskets. Mm -hmm. And so that's the level of death. Your casket based on a Facebook ad. That is, I know that is, there's like so many things that you can do with that. I think that was a little harder to do nowadays because there, there's a lot more, but before, like, for example, one of the things you could do was you, uh, you, you could basically get them information that they provide to Facebook things that they liked. So for example, I think you needed like a sample size of 10, but what you could do is like create nine fake profiles and then have, let's say I take your profile and then these nine pro fake profiles. I know what the answers are, put them into the, the Facebook upload and it would shoot out the, the aggregate of the 10, but I'm like macing all these nine yeah. profiles, like 30 year olds or something. So I kind of know what the difference is. They got rid of that. So I think Facebook's getting better with the, with the security and stuff like that. So it's going to be harder, but based on the other platforms that I've seen since they haven't been scrutinized as much. So there's like so much still leeway to be able to target from those other platforms. All right. So let's, let's move forward a little bit here. Um, you get this medical bill as you're, you know, helping building jump cut. Um, and you know, what, it, whenever you have like a family incident, you know, it puts it, it, it frames what you're doing bigger than the business itself. So like, how did you react to this in terms of like managing emotions and then channeling yourself to say, Hey, 
the, the best way to use my emotions is to make more money. And <laughs> like, that's like a, it's a difficult thing to do because it's easy to, it's easy to let your emotions consume more energy and not make more money. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll, I'll tell you, it was, it was a little hard at first. As in, if I told you, oh my gosh, I started my business the next day, I'd be like totally lying. It was more of, I always, I wanted to get under my table and just cry. And we're like, I can't do it. I don't have the savings or anything. I can't cut costs. I'm, I'm already cutting so many different types of costs at this point. So I definitely, you hit it on the nail with that. It's like, I use that energy to figure out how do I actually make it work? As in, how do I actually build? So it's like, there's basically two ways to make money, right? You can either cut costs or you just increase your income. And so I just decided, you know what? I have these weekends. Let's figure out what I can do while Jump Cut is taking up. And I'm pretty positive Jump Cut's going to take off, but it's still like three, four months away before we have, have everything to be in the positive. So what I decided to do was on the weekends, I just did, I tried to figure out what did I learn from all my past failures and actually make a business that one, would succeed and two, pay the bill, but three, provide actual sustainable value. So I went back to thinking about, okay, there, there's, there's no time for fooling around. You can't spend three months trying to make a TEDx course that maybe someone will buy. You need something that people will literally buy today. And so went back to the basis and I thought about what problem can I solve for people that people are willing to pay for that I actually know where these people are sitting. And so I went back to the basics made, I actually just got a sheet of paper and wrote down a bunch of ideas. And one of the ideas was how to get people into management consulting, the job that I had prior to working at Jump Cut. And so I just went online and I knew where the forms were because I was active answering questions on these. So I went on Reddit. So the Reddit, the subreddit are consulting. And I just started, there was like, there was an ask me anything at the time or so forth. I just started answering questions on those, those questions. And then I, I just said, Hey, if you want more information, DM me. And so people would just DM me and I said, Hey, let's get on the phone. And I would just literally sit on my calendar. And then I would have like 12 calls on a Saturday, Sunday, and just talking to people about their problems. But then from there, it's like customer research. I kind of figure out what the pain points were. And at the end of the calls, I would literally say, Hey, all right, David. So let's say that I could help you solve X, Y, Z. And I had a program with this. Would you be interested? Similar to TEDx? Like, absolutely. Okay, great. So I'm going to charge this amount, like say a thousand for this when I first started. And then it's like, would you be in? I was like, yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Like, great. So would you like to pay that from Venmo or would you like PayPal? And I gave them no option. And then people just enrolled. And then so now that's how I got my first 13 customers was just like on the call from Reddit, providing tons of value. And then of course, I eventually the 13 to pay the thousand, that's like half the debt. And then I got more level of a couple more people that paid all the debt off. And I just serviced them. I, I did everything like on the beginning. This is why I think the first customers do dictate your direction of your company, because if you really cared about them, you would do everything about that. Like I knew about their payment. I knew their family, their siblings, what they were worried about. I hand edited their resume, cover letters. I practiced them with the mock technical interview, the case interview, we call it. And all of them ended up getting jobs in consulting. So they all left with like near six figure jobs out of college. I got my debt paid. And then the best part of it was, I thought this was like a one-time thing just to clear the debt. But how I ended up clearing the debt was that they made referrals. So it's kind of like the virality there. It's like the best marketing isn't social media marketing. It's when people literally fast forward. Like for Zecker, Hacker, the first, I remember the first time I had a medium post, I kept sharing. I do this for like all the things. Like I literally, if it's a good post, I will share with everyone I know who I think would benefit from it. And that's how what took off for our business was that people started sharing their results organically. And that's how we ended up getting more and more customers. I was still doing it part-time for 
a year, just weekends, Saturday, Sundays, while Jump Cut was taking off. And I love Jump Cut. And it's wanting them to succeed. So it's like Saturday, Sundays, I would work on this business. And eventually it out, outgrew just the 13 people. And then at some point within a year, we were already crossing six figures in profit. I paid off the debt. I even upgraded my life a little bit by, hey, you know what? I don't have to sit on this lawn chair anymore. I am going to get a sturdier Costco chair now. Like little things like that. I uh, just upgraded, upgraded a little bit, but everything else I kept my cost low. Is it still just you doing all the service? You know, because service is a great spot to start in terms of yeah. like that immediate need. You know, you get that, you get that, you spend the time, you're paid for your time no matter what. You know, that's like a, one of the good things to, it, one, it proves the value, but then, you know, where, where it gets concerning is like, you know, the, the scaling question and how does it work as it starts to scale? And um, I guess, how did you, because you, there's, at that point, you know, you can see there's a clear one person business here where I can make more money than I'm making in my startup. And I know that this works. I know the need is there. And I know if I just spend my time on it, it will grow. But how did you approach like that as a one person business versus saying, hey, let's turn this into a real bigger business. And like it, it is scalable, even though what the product they're buying is me. Hmm. Absolutely. So I guess the first decision you have to make is, do you want to scale? Because like a lot of people, like let's say they're CPAs or so forth. They just want to be a one person operation or chiropractor. For me, I knew I wanted to scale what we were doing. So this is going back to my management consulting days is I basically just built out a org chart of what I think the future organization would be look like. For example, we would have a head of marketing. We would have a, a head of enrollment, sales, customer support. We have a head of marketing, a head of product and so forth. And I thought about head of operation. I thought about how do we build that out? And so I started moving away from just me. So that first six months was a completely 100% Davis. Davis did everything, operations, resumes, interview coaching. But then later on, I started replacing myself with people who were better than me. So for example, the, the, the resume and cover letter, I found out there were people who loved doing this, who were former HR background, who was just met better than me. So I hired them as part-time contractors at the beginning. Some of them are like full-time now, but started replacing myself but as long as i replaced myself i started building into infrastructure so it's kind of like in the world like you have tech debt we had tech debt and operational debt i wanted to keep those as low as possible so i basically stopped our growth in the beginning just to make sure we had like manuals cut out like the knowledge transfer and everything else was there that we had like internal we call it a second brain but we had like an internal second brain where people could go through and figure out what the processes how to code and everything worked and then that's how we ended up scaling to the point where and I can talk about the sequence if you guys are, if, if anyone's curious about the logic of it. Brain, is that a common term or did you come up with it? So actually our operations manager came up with it. She's like, yeah, Dave, it's kind of like a second brain for us. I was like, all right, that's what we're calling it. Second brain. So oh, it's like, great. it's kind of like an operations manual for each of the parts and like knowledge, but we call it second brain. Cool. And hopefully at one point, the second brain is smarter than you. Is that like the end game? That's the end game is that the second brain is smarter to me because it's like the brains of all of us and I can step away from the business from the day to day. Like for now, for example, we have two years into the business. We're I'm full time on it. We have full time team members, still have contractors and so forth. But yeah, we have a live second brain and every, every department, if you will, has a second brain that was started with Davis's brain that got replaced over time. I told, I, I would tell every single head of my departments that if this if all the procedures and all the documents are the same a year from now as when I wrote them, there is something wrong here. <laughs> so it's kind of like they need to run with the ball and so forth. And so nowadays we've pretty much systematized it to the point where the quality is still high. We're still getting high success rate, but at the same time, that's why I really care about is like we need to have quality before we scale. And then the second thing is that are the, do, does my team feel empowered to answer questions even when I'm not around? 
And so could you describe your day-to-day work life right now? Yeah, absolutely. So day-to-day work life is, do you want to do before and after or just like the right now? Right now. Right now is wake up, do my morning workout, usually listen to a podcast. How you can use one of those. There's other ones as well that I rotate through. And then most of my morning is just meeting with my team. So it's kind of like leverage time. It's kind of like if I meet with them once a week, I'm hoping that it provides them with at least 30 to 40 hours of direction of what needs to get done. So I'll meet with my team and then yeah, meet with my team. And then the afternoon is pretty much besides the emails that get escalated to me because second brain can't handle it. Maybe an hour of my time is email. So literally my day is 6 a.m., 8 a.m. workout. And then 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. is 10 a.m. is just meeting with teams. Hi. Sorry, we got a little guest here. <laughs> oh, no, I, I love guests. <laughs> you want to say hello? Hi. Oh, you're beautiful. All right. Go back with mama. Yeah, that's the work-life balance. They claps on you, you know, you got this remote. (laughs) (laughs) All good. (laughs) But no, as in, yeah, 6 a.m., 8 a.m. is just workout. And then from usually 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., I just plan my day. And then 9 a.m. to around 11, I just meet with my team on whatever they need to do to move things forward like my heads in my departments. And then from, this is funny, this is from 11 a.m., including today actually, until 1 p.m., I want to meet with industry leaders to think about how can I help them? And then if I could get something- Every day, you're meeting with a stranger that's an industry leader every day, just on education and booking that time out. Exactly, I just try to, right? Because I think it's like, it's two things. One is if I can make an impact to help them, if I hope so, then I hope that they can take their business. Because obviously I'm not reaching out to people who are like cigarette companies or anything like that. It's more like- brands that I associate myself with. And then if we end up having like a longer call, it's kind of like every now and then I also hear nuggets that I'm like, oh, thanks for getting that. I've never thought about that. So we should probably try to do that as well. Yeah, and so I it's kind of- thought it a lot more like that in my 20s. Like living in San Francisco, I was always trying to just meet the next smartest person, you know, and le- learn from them and uh, or interesting person. And it was really helpful. But like when I left San Francisco and I came to Colorado and I stopped really taking meetings, uh, not, not stop taking meetings like with my team, but stop like taking the exploratory meetings of like, you're just interesting. Let me spend some time with you. And when I did that, I moved from like 1 million page views a month to 8 million. And I was really like hyper-focused and only taking meetings that I, you know, knew grew my business. Mm. So it was much more of like a raise the floor type of thing because it was like, I know I'm not going to waste time. Like if uh, I'm meeting with someone, it's, it's, I know exactly it'll move one of my core metrics, no matter what, as opposed to just like improving my brain and, and, and meeting these like things that, you know, you need to keep educating yourself. So like, but I don't think I could have done that if I didn't l- learn a bunch of stuff before, but there is definitely a trade-off of like, cause meetings also drain you, you know, like I try and not take more than two meetings a day. And like two meetings is kind of my cap because once I take the third meeting, I don't, I can't do the other six hours of work that I need to do to like, I just need to type, you know, I, I like that's, that's how I'm doing a lot more of my progress. That's kind of, uh, I don't know. It, it, meetings take a lot of energy. It is definitely, uh, it's, it's hard to, I, I don't know how some of these people go to an office and takes eight meetings back to back in a row. Like that's like, 
<laughs> Sounds so brutal. <laughs> it's pretty brutal. See, but I think you're right. As in, it's like advice like that. I just literally took a note of all that. Is that I think that those are the type of advice that I love getting. Is that things that I don't think about. It's like, no, you're right. Yeah, maybe my exploratory meetings, the the times I do it, should probably be like focused on hitting our key results or our objective versus just me exploring. But in this case, it was like I just wanted to give back to, and a lot of it is just more of. But no, those are like great advice. That's exactly why I have these calls is that people tell me things I hadn't considered before. Like, for example, earlier this week, someone was telling me about, so we haven't really marketed on LinkedIn, but now I'm, I'm exploring LinkedIn as a viable channel. And basically he went through his whole sequence about how he and his team uses LinkedIn to leverage and find their customer base. And I'm like, oh, wow, I haven't thought about using LinkedIn that way. That's pretty brilliant. And then so, but yeah, basically I take my two, three meetings in the morning and then the rest of the day is just going in and heads down, thinking through some of the ideas, keyboard down, planning out the next year or next month or next week and heads down. But it wasn't always that way. Like I, I will tell anyone who's starting off a side hustle in the beginning, I was taking eight meetings. I literally take 12 meetings the first time the business came. And to, to be honest, was like those were draining, but it was like what needed to happen in the beginning to move us forward to where we are today. And in the beginning, you're, this, the customer education is so important. Like you, I, I really like the approach that you took of like, hey, there's this group of people I can help. And there's a group of people that I, I can, if I talk to enough of them, I learn the type of help that they need and how that could be systemized. Like it's a very logical uh, approach to starting a business. Cause sometimes I look back at my business and I'm like, I am an idiot. I'm serving the contributing writer. I'm serving the reader. I'm serving the sponsor. I have to build for the editor. And at the end of the day, I'm serving four different types of users to build one business, mm. which is like, geez, why can't I just sell some shoes to somebody? Like that's so much simpler. Like have one type of customer, one type of offering. And it's just like such a simpler business like that, you know, sometimes I look back and I'm like, I think my business is really cool, but like, why couldn't I have just picked a simpler one? You know, there, it's hard to, it's hard to serve a lot of people yeah. at once. It, it is, isn't it? It's like one of those things in the beginning and you just have to I think that's the hard part about it is too, is I eventually, and I, I see this on the team with the distributed model you guys have as well is eventually you empower people to be able to take on all of it. So you can focus more, but like those early days when you're grinding it out were like necessary, but they were really hard. Like you mentioned like two to three meetings, like today I take two to three meetings a day, but like even six months ago, I was taking like six meetings a day, six to eight meetings a day, because that's what we need. I was interviewing people for roles. I was handling fires, escalation. Stripe was like, hey, your revenue went up unexpectedly this week. We just want to make sure that you're, you're legitimate. So we're sending someone to talk to you and things like that. And it's just, <laughs> no, really, like that. Stripe's like, are you a legitimate business? <laughs> like, yeah, legitimate. Like pay, pay, Stripe, I think just, I mean, you guys feel things, but like PayPal, oh, I have to get on so many calls with them. And it's, it's like part of the fast growth business where like, I think my, my account was frozen. So it's like meetings that you just have to take in order for the yeah. greater good. But now it's like in a better place where- The greater good, it's like the operational things, like ah, I have to deal with, you know, like, pay, like if my payments aren't processing or they're trying to stop my payments, like you have to stop everything and solve the, and put out the fire. Putting out fires is really where it's like, yeah, it, it forces meeting, it forces action. And it's like, whether your expertise is consulting or engineering, if you're going to grow, uh, make a small business into a big business, you have to put out a lot of fires that you just don't anticipate. And you're working on things that are just like, they feel out of left field at the time, but you know, you have to do them. And if you do them, it opens up to get back to your expertise and back to the strength of the business. Exactly. I, I, my, my joke when I, when I was that I, I had this t-shirt design, never printed it, but CEO in the early days, basically just means chief extinguisher officer. 
that's good. To me, it's like, you're just putting out fires all day. And it's like, oh man, all I want to do is go back to helping my customers out. And yet I have all these other logistical things that I need to be taking out. And then it's kind of like, oh, great. Boy. And no, exactly. It, those were, those were still happens today, but like rarer than it did before because we have the systems in place. But those are, those were the times. So how do you, how do you look at the future of your business? Uh, what, how big can this become? And then, and, and then, I mean, I imagine the end game would be someone like Bain coming back and saying, Hey, <laughs> we should have done this from the beginning. Can we buy you? Like, <laughs> isn't, isn't that like one of the, not that you want to sell your business, but yeah. I imagine these big consulting companies, like they should look in the mirror and say like, how do I get better talent? And you know, people like you are going to come up. Absolutely. That's what we're trying to be right now. There's none of that in the market, but I think that's one of the visions that we want to be. But ultimately, how big we grow is going to be dictated by the quality. Like I said, we, we are very similar to Lambda strategy or Lambda school in terms that they, what they do is, of course, the risk sharing where it's like we want to be, we want to be our incentives aligned with you. I, I'll tell you the day we switched to that model. I, I was like sweating that night, but an average night after I, I sleep so well because I'm like, <laughs> I make sure that our product team is the best team. I make sure that our customer service team is the best team and so forth, that we can get everything needed. So that the long-term vision is that I, I know that I, I am I'm maybe the person who takes us from zero to like seven figures, which is there, but like to go to eight figures and so forth and profit and so forth, that's probably going to be either hiring a great team, training myself to be that, or just replacing myself eventually. Cause I, I have no problem with that. It's like, how do we serve our customer base and how do we help people be I'm better thinkers and I'm biased because I worked as a management consultant, but I think that that's one of the best trainings for anyone who wants to go down that route and they don't want to start a business. They're not like a side hustler or anything like that. And I want to make sure to continue that. But yeah, the long term is that maybe I, th- I, I always joke, there's going to be one way is that Bain is I'm going to say, Oh, this is great. Let's uh, hire you, buy you out or whatever. The other one's like, Davis, screw you for trying to game our system of how to fit people in our company. We have to completely just change how we do interviews completely just to screw you over. That's like the other extreme that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, the, cause it is how much of the business is optimizing for the interview versus like improving the talent or the skill level. Mm. So our, our philosophy is actually to improve the skill level. And if you can improve the skill level, you can improve the, you can improve the interview rate. So I guess in that regard, we're trying to train people to think like consultants. So like one of our best, one of my favorite, so, when people go through the program at the end of it, they leave review, but a lot of people also leave video testimonials for us. And not everyone who leaves a video testimony actually got an offer. And sometimes they just said, you know what? I'm so grateful for the program. I didn't get an offer, but I sharpened my thinking so much that my next role as so-and-so at the, the company that they ultimately got an offer at, they're like, this was so worth it. And that's what I want to think about is that we're not trying to cram you to the test, but we're trying to think about how do we raise your talent? How do we raise your business acumen? And how do we make you just an overall better structured thinker? And I think that is the best approach versus the others in the market, which is like, all right, let's just cram for this one interview. And do you miss uh, the consulting work itself? You know, cause you're spending all this time building people up how to think and getting their own consulting work. Do you miss like the random coconut water problem or the software acquisition problem, you know, <laughs> and are you like feeding that at all and taking any side uh, <laughs> consulting to just like, you know, just like a nurse, like if you're, if you're a nurse and you're teaching, you know, you go to ER twice a month and you mm. continue to be in the ER and doctors and nurses. And if, even if they're teaching, they know they have to come back and, you know, keep those skills sharp. 
<laughs> yeah. So for for the for the first two years that my consulting offer existed, I didn't take it up because I just didn't have the bandwidth to it. But now it's like on low season, and I don't think it's a, a longer term engagement. It's more of hey, a friend startup. Hey, Davis, can we just pay you a nominal amount to just go in and look at our? A lot of it goes towards. I found it has been consulting on three different fields. One is their social media ad spend, just to figure out are they optimizing, building the dashboards, things like that. Second is building out their customer service team. And three is like operationalizing their business. So every now and then it's like more of a, a friend basis versus me seeking out. It's like a friend is like, hey, Davis, okay, so we just raised this amount of money. But let's be honest, I feel like I'm, I'm running around. I have no clue what's going on. Can you just go in and tell me what my org chart should be like and what I do with this newly raised money? I was like, good thing you did not tell your, uh, your VCs that much. But yes, I will go in and uh, spend a day with you to figure out. But I, I do that more rarely. And it's like more like one or two a quarter. And it's more like just a couple calls versus going deep in for an engagement. But do I miss it? Yes. But the good thing is that I, I get it every day when we do it. Because even though it's training out my team, it's like a different problem. Like, for example, it's, for example, my head of product who's coming in. How do we onboard him? And how do I set him for success? And for, let's say, our future marketing team and our partnership team what's the structure that we need to do and who do we need to bring on board in order to build out school partnerships with like the harvards the yales and maintain those relationships so i feel like i'm still doing that just within the same business with different parts but every now and then a, a friend will come through with a very interesting business idea and i'm like oh i can get into that and yeah, help you out i think it's smart and i i think uh i mean in terms of keeping your skills sharp but then also like I, I mean, I have a contractor on my team who's a founder and running his own business. And it's like, it's cool. You know, it's, it's a nice balance of like, how does each party get, you know, good value for their time? You know, I, I think as the whole economy is being more split into gigs, I think it's, it's not the end of the world for like, you know, high powered people to take on a part-time project. Like, <laughs> like, I think it's a smart thing. And I, I'm excited about a world away from salary. Like I think salary is extremely dangerous is like mm. becoming addicted and content. And like, that's what you live, you know? And when it's your own business owner, it's, it's not salary. You know, you do the core of your compensation, hopefully if the thing grows is your equity. And that's the, the, the core value that you've created, but it still is like, I think diverse interests, it's, it's the balance between like, just going out and taking what interests you versus focusing on your own business and then finding that satisfaction. It's a really uh, tough line to walk. I think so. As in, I think for, it, it's a really tough line, but I love the incentives. There's like not salary, but there are other things like work-life balance that matters. And then of course, earning what you are able to bring in and so forth. But the, it, luckily we are moving closer towards that type of model. As in, I remember a couple of years ago when I was reading uh, we work and just like this is such a foreign concept but now more and more there's more of these remote working models where people are doing like profit share where is actually compensation there's like there's a couple companies i have where it's like their sales team is completely commission-based which was like that's insane to me it's like wow so they literally earn what they kill like they are part of the company and then of course some of the other metrics is like all right this is your key metric this is how you perform i'm like wow we're moving towards it and then you're filtering out for the people who are going to be a plus performers who want that otherwise they wouldn't apply for the role knowing that there's nothing guaranteed and have you had any customers come in thinking they wanted to you know get management consulting job and walking out an entrepreneur <laughs> you know it's funny we actually have as in we we've had a number of those people actually coming through and they're like davis thanks for teaching me the skills i think i'm gonna be successful at some point throughout the process they're like you know i just want to start my own company 
as in not saying that I inspired them or anything like that, but we have that happen as in for all of it, like a lot of people who come to our program, if they decide that consulting is not for them, I'm really glad that they learned that within like that six week that we work with them versus like two years down the road after they signed a contract and so forth. There is an irony of like going straight from college to management consulting. Like, wouldn't you go straight from college to like managing? <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> it is kind of a, I mean, I get the, the idea of like the smartest people go in, work on a problem and then move on to the next problem. Like that, that makes sense. But it's still like, I get on the path of like, why would you ever get an MBA? Why wouldn't you just start a business? You know, like that thing of like, aren't you skipping the step step where you master business? You know, there is a little bit of that in management consulting where it, it can get a little counterintuitive, you know, about uh, what, what the goal is. But I, I do, you know, look back like, Hey, it would have been fun to just take on a different real business challenge every week or week or month or whatever, you know, the, the, the length of the project is. Um, so what, what type of people do you think, get attracted to management consultant and is there any like personality trait that you look at and you're like, yeah, that person's going to work in this job. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's a couple of prerequisites, which is that they're very a type plus achievers because you wouldn't want to work the mad hours for the relatively, the, how much you could be earning. Like you could earn, you could earn more being a software engineer and working work much less, but it's the type of a plus type of overachiever that comes to be as in, who comes in. And the second trait that I've noticed is that a lot of them, they don't quite know what they want to do yet. Because I think the appeal of it is that maybe they, like a lot of people of my peer, they, or even the people we work with are engineers. And they're like, I'm not quite sure I want to spend the rest of my life in software and so forth. And so they go into consulting because it is like one week you work in retail, the next week you work in luxury goods, the next week you're working utilities and you get different exposure, different things. It's kind of like almost continuing. A lot of them come from liberal arts education, not necessarily exclusively, but a lot of them is kind of like, they want to continue that education. They don't quite know what they want to do yet. And the third trait that I also noticed is they tend to be problem solvers. So they love working on hard problems. Again, I've noticed so many management consultants who were former software engineers and vice versa, and they actually leave consulting to be engineers and so forth and start their own companies. So there's like a huge overlap between who becomes, it's almost, I guess, another analogy for a lot of the, the listeners here would be, it's kind of like your typical PM, except instead of they didn't know they wanted to work in tech, they for all they did, they could have been in consumer goods. So that's the type of person that works in. Because eventually, a lot of PMs do come from consulting backgrounds. Eventually, when they find their the industry that they want to specialize in. Cool, cool. Um, I think we should start to wrap up here. Um, before we go, you know, maybe uh, it's good to think about just, you know, what what type of person should reach out to you. And uh, how should they reach out to you? <laughs> well, similar to uh, similar to you, David, as in I will welcome all emails, but replying back depends on my inbox that day. But just you can reach out to me at myconsultingoffer.org. My blog is just davisswin.com, but my email is just davis at myconsultingoffer.org. There's like so many ways to reach me. I'm not hard to find, even though I'm not on social media as much as I could be. But best way to reach out is if you wear a t-shirt that I support of an organization, it is really, really fun. I think that is... That's what I do nowadays. It's like, hey, if I owned a t-shirt, it probably means that I have no other things. But yeah, that, as a joke, but like, literally, if someone ever sent me a t-shirt of any of the nonprofits I support, I will literally reply back to your email. I was like, oh, you know about this nonprofit? <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. I just got this email attachment. Davis is wearing a Hacker Noon shirt, uh, telling me the story of this business. And I was like, this is an interesting guy I got to meet and just find out what's going on with this business. <laughs> I appreciate it, David. It's been an honor. Cool. Thanks for listening to Hacker Noon Podcast. Talk to you later. Bye.